welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Today I speak with two of the founders of Impello Biosciences. They focus on helping plants to grow by using natural strains of bacteria. Our friend Sarah, who works on the wholesale team here at Bluebird Botanicals, introduced us to her old friend and Impello CEO, Michael Key. At their office in Fort Collins, Colorado, just up the stairs from the plant rooms where they test and grow their creations, we sat down with Michael and the Chief Operating Officer, Eric Hagstrom, to learn more about how they harness the power of biostimulants. At Impello Biosciences, the biostimulants they produce are microbes that live around the roots of plants and help them grow. Known as rhizobacteria, from the Greek word for root, these microbes are a key part of plant health in the wild. They strongly affect the microenvironment around the roots because they release metabolites that, among other things, trigger plant growth as well as protecting from pathogenic infection. Using these biostimulants is an alternative to chemical fertilizers and pesticides, and they form an important piece in cannabis cultivation as well as for many other commodity crops. It's a fascinating look at the power of bacterial symbiosis to grow bigger, healthier plants. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I'm really happy to be here in the offices of, the, of a great little uh, tech startup, Impello Biosciences, and I'm here with Michael Key and Eric Hagstrom. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Can you tell me about where you were and what brought you to starting this uh, company and what, they, and what you're into? Sure. So uh, my background is in uh, horticulture. I got my degree at Colorado State University. Uh, then I had a background in the cannabis industry. I worked for Functional Remedies, or CBDRX, um, as their director of research and development for several years. Uh, at the same time, I was working in the Center for Rhizosphere Biology at Colorado State, uh, so I was getting really immersed with uh, rhizosphere biology and the hemp industry and uh, saw a huge opportunity for what these big hemp farmers and marijuana farmers needed um, and what we could actually do both with the, uh, the soil microbiome and other aspects of uh, plant physiology. And before you go on, can you just define rhizosphere biology? Sure. So the rhizosphere is uh, the area of uh, soil or media uh, directly next to roots, so usually within about 15 millimeters of a root surface. Uh, so it's not like just bulk soil that has to have a root near it. Um, and I think uh, Eric found this particularly interesting as well. And where we actually grew up together back in Wisconsin, um, and Eric comes uh, to the business with a little bit more of the, uh, the business and investment side and saw some opportunity there as well. And we took it from there. Yeah, so um, I came from as Michael said, the business side. Uh, I was working for a, an investment firm that focused on business development of startups. Um, and I, like Michael said, I've known Michael forever. We've been good friends. We grew up next to each other. And Michael was telling me about uh, this new trend in agriculture um, and this new trend, particularly in the cannabis industry, and how these bacteria are going to play a vital role um, in the future of agriculture. Um, and so I was looking at this kind of in the way that I was working with other clients back in Wisconsin on these startups. And, and more and more kind of came through and 
we kind of just jump for it. Um, and that it's kind of how these startups happen. You have to make a jump at something. You have to take action, and that's what we kind of did. And now we're sitting here a le- year later um, in a good position. And it's exactly a year later, right? Don't we have a congratulations for your birthday tomorrow? Yeah, it's, it's a year. It's been exactly a year tomorrow. Um, and so we're really excited. And this next year is a, is a crucial point. Um, we're starting to work with people all over the country now, and it's, it's exciting. What was the basis of the business as you got it started, working with these bacteria? Yeah, so initially we were just focused on uh, developing these blends of plant growth promoting rhizobacteria. That's the technical name. Um, for use in uh, like big hemp fields and for big commercial uh, and you know wholesale dispensary or, or hemp growers. Um, over the last year, though, we've really kind of refined our, our focus and we're starting to embrace all sorts of plant biostimulants. Um, so that includes anything that's kind of not a traditional fertilizer or a pesticide, uh, but is designed or applied to the plant to promote growth in uh, totally unique ways. Um, so we're very... Uh, kind of obsessed with the biological aspects of, of growth promo- promotion, and we think there's a lot of opportunity for all sorts of growers to start incorporating these technologies into their existing programs or to kind of embrace them as a new uh, new culture method. So overall, it feels to me like more of a holistic approach to growing plants, working with their the ecosystems of them. Yeah, that's a, a, that's a perfect way to look at it. Um, uh, everyone knows that plants require chemical nutrition, you know, fertilizers, um, and not as much emphasis over the last, you know, two or three decades has been placed on the importance of the kind of inherent biology that comes when you grow a plant in the field. You know, there's millions or billions of different bacteria and fungi and other microorganisms in the soil, and they're all interacting with the plant, um, you know, on or in or around the plant. And you know, these shouldn't be taken for granted. And that's what we were realizing, you know, through research and also just through our, our trials is that you can grow a plant successfully without em- embracing the biology, um, but you can grow a plant better by embracing that biology and the chemistry. And so the, the two bacteria you chose to start with are uh, Pseudomonas and Bacillus? Yeah. So, uh, so actually we, we focus exclusively on uh, Bacillus. Um, there are two primary, I mean, the two very dominant uh, plant growth promoting bacteria in the rhizosphere are Pseudomonas and Bacillus. Um, our good friends at Mammoth P are, are, are uh, doing a lot of development with uh, Pseudomonas type strains, and we're focusing more on Bacillus type strains. Um, they're both uh, phenomenally good at growth promotion, and they share a lot of the same mechanisms. Uh, they share some different mechanisms, and ultimately they do work together pretty well, and uh, you can find them in almost all soils. So like we said, we're kind of trying to, uh, we're both taking different approaches, but we're all trying to embrace the biological aspects of plant nutrition. And so your white paper, it dives really deeply into the biochemistry of what's going on here. And so can you give a little bit of background about why it's so good to have this bacteria living just in the, in the close vicinity of a root? Sure. So that's a great question. So when these bacteria are growing on or around uh, plant roots, for example, they're doing their own thing. They're they're living and they're actually producing tons of different biochemicals and enzymes and even some uh, plant growth hormones. And the reaction, you know, the the response of the plant is uh, ultimately favorable or positive when you're dealing with these 
beneficial bacteria. Um, the, ultimately, what is happening is the bacteria are mobilizing additional nutrients in the soil. So you have lots of uh, organic matter, like out in a field, but the majority of those nutrients are not available to the plant to actually uptake, or it costs the plant a significant amount of energy uh, to try and acquire those nutrients or water or whatever. There's a lot of uh, difficulties in a plant's life because it can't move around. So what these bacteria do is essentially help the plant um, acquire different nutrients and grow faster with less stress or less impact from stress, uh, all through you know both this enzyme production, but also the, the countless other biochemical uh, interactions that it's having with the plant. And so it, it's almost like a symbiosis between this bacteria and the root. So do, do the bacteria almost function like an extension of the root that, that make it feel bigger and reach out farther? Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head. So the bacteria, I mean, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with mycorrhiza fungi, um, which literally means, you know, root fungus. Uh, and that is a, a different type of microorganisms that actually acts as an extension to a root surface. Um, bacillus, what we work with, uh, functions a little differently, but it actually, uh, you know, both encourages mycorrhizal symbiosis uh, with plant roots, but also, uh, yes, as you're saying, it helps the plant essentially extend or make greater use of its root system. It can encourage root branching, um, so you get a greater root surface area for better water uptake or nutrient uptake. And uh, on top of that, yeah, you're inducing greater root formation overall and, and water uptake through those other biochemical reactions. And so before we get into the nuts and bolts more of the biochemistry and the different conditions, um, what would this application look like for someone who wants to farm hemp, wants to farm cannabis, and wants to utilize the power of good bacteria? So we were really interested in that aspect, actually, when we were developing this product. Um, you know, a lot of people are familiar with microbes, but uh, whether you're a home grower or a massive hemp farm or a huge indoor you know, marijuana cultivation facility, uh, these products not only have to work in theory, they have to work in practice, and they have to be easy to apply. You know, farmers have a hard enough job already, so we don't want to come out with a product that adds 15 additional steps and is difficult to use and causes more problems. So for a hemp farmer, let's say, who's actually going to utilize our product in a field, it's as easy as hooking it up to a drip system and uh, running it through irrigation lines to get it on the plant roots in the field. Um, and it won't clog those drip lines. It won't start growing or fermenting or causing any biofilm buildup. And really, as soon as it gets introduced into the soil, uh, it will start going to work and find some plant roots and start colonizing them and go from there. And how often... Uh would, would someone be applying this in a normal grow cycle? So that's largely dependent on uh, the cultivation style. So whether you're in hydroponics or out in the field. Um, generally, you know, we would say applying once a week is great. Um, sometimes for the hemp farmers, like we said, we're trying to keep it uh, reasonable with the applications. So once every two weeks, uh, you can even stretch it to once every month. Uh, we suggest applying a little more often because these bacteria have a lot of competition in the soil. So introducing them frequently keeps the population really high and ensures a really steady uh, activity from the bacteria. And I'm actually sitting here holding one of your sample bottles, which is really a pretty, sorry, it kind of looks like uh, coffee with a lot of milk in it. But how many bacteria are in this uh, bottle that's just about the size of my hand? Yeah, so you're holding a, uh, uh, just a 100 milliliter uh, little sample bottle. 
Um, in each milliliter of liquid, there's 10 billion uh, bacterial spores or endospores. Um, so in a 100 milliliter bottle, that's about a trillion bacteria. Wow, that's a lot of power. And for this um, liquid, what do they like living in the best while you store them uh, before they go out to the fields? Yeah, another good question. So our, our bacteria, um, we think, have a great advantage because they form these endospores, which are, uh, the technical term would be metabolically inert, which essentially means that they're, they're dormant or they're hibernating. They're waiting to be introduced to an environment that is uh, favorable or conducive to growth. So in the bottle, they're, uh, they're actually just fine sitting in essentially water. Um, and the water is very, very heavy. Uh, compared to the weight of the spores, so it looks like there's almost nothing in there. But as we just said, you know, there's there's quite a few bacteria in there. Once they're introduced into a field or, or any kind of hydroponic media, uh, plant roots actually exude enough food to support these uh, microbial colonies. So the bacteria migrate towards plant roots, and they can uh, just grow happily right along that root surface. Wow! So these are really tough little spores. I mean, something that can survive this long. You, you said earlier that your recommended shelf life for your product would be a year or two, but really these could survive for 10 years and it's probably going to be fine. Yeah. So there are pretty crazy stories as far as, uh, you know, the durability of, uh, bacillus and other endospore forming bacteria. Um, they've actually cultured different endospore forming bacteria off the outside of a spaceship that's gone into and, you know, into space and then come back to Earth and uh, you know these little guys survived. There's uh, some some studies that have shown germinating spores that have been dormant for you know well over a decade. Um, so yeah, they're they're really resilient. You know we can guarantee a year at our original concentration, um, but you know a consumer could be pretty confident that regardless of the environmental conditions that they keep our bacteria and there will be some sticking around for quite a while. And just a, a, an odd question on safety. What would happen if a human were to drink a bunch of this? Would anything happen? So uh, we, we've had a lot of people ask us that. <laughs> and uh, we wanted to find out. You know, we're scientists. We're, we don't, that doesn't mean we always do things appropriately. But we, uh, you know, we looked into this. And actually, uh, so all the Bacillus species we use are generally recognized as safe. And that's a USDA classification. Um, what that means is if you happen to spill some in your mouth or put some in your coffee, not saying we've done that, but you're not going to, you're not going to die. You're probably not even going to get sick. Um, if anything, it actually acts somewhat like a probiotic. We don't encourage people to do that again. You know, this product is intended to feed your plants, uh, not yourself, but it's very safe. Uh, and if you, I think that sounds very scientific if you were testing on yourself. That's how they found out that ulcers were caused by bacteria because one scientist just drank it and gave himself an ulcer. So I, I admire your, your dedication. Yeah, you know, we, uh, we need to test the products. And so I learned a little bit about the history of bacterial fertilizers from reading your stuff. And so can you tell me a little bit more about, comp about products like Alienit that got this started? Sure. So, yeah, there, there's been a lot of research over the last, uh, you know, two, three, almost even four decades um, looking at different biocontrol, and that would be like a biopesticide um, products or biofertilizers, like, yeah, Alan, like you said. Um, and these products have had a, uh, you know, very successful run, um, and they're still actually pretty relevant products. 
there's a lot of money in the big agriculture world that's moving towards developing kind of the newest iterations of products like that. Um, so a lot of those products started off as single species, you know, single strain, um, like a Bacillus subtilis only. Um, and it's something that, you know, maybe this one strain demonstrated a great ability to colonize uh, plant tissues and prevent you know, downy mildew or something. Um, but what the, the trend has been moving towards is not massive combinations of different bacteria or fungi because that gets very difficult to uh, kind of calculate what's actually happening, but towards limited consortias of uh, just a few select bacterial species or fungal species, um, which is exactly what we're trying to do. So we picked three Bacillus species that work extraordinarily well together. They won't outcompete each other. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like a new and improved version of where these bacterial products were a couple decades ago. It, it just sounds like a really tricky thing because science is so oriented towards single molecule, single species work because the variables are already so high. So what's it like to try to figure out amongst these different species how, to, how many to put in and, and which types? Yeah, it's, uh, that's the hardest part. And that's actually um, probably one of the biggest costs on the research side is just screening for different microbes and screening for different combinations of bacteria, looking at what works the best, you know, running all sorts of assays and different tests. And uh, it's not easy. You know, if we could look at, at, you know, or go outside and grab some soil and say this is the ideal bacterial and fungal blend, we would have done that a long time ago. Um, but it's not so easy. And uh, one thing that I really like to reference, and it kind of speaks to the simplicity of our three bacterial strains, is that there was a, pu a paper published just last year that looked at the difficulty in quantifying uh, the the microbe-microbe interactions in any sort of ecosystem. And uh, it was written by a biophysicist, but he essentially came to the conclusion that I believe the number was uh, 17. In, in any ecosystem where there are more than 17 types of bacteria or, or fungi or any microorganisms, there are more possible microbe-microbe interactions between those 17 species than there are atoms in the visible universe. So quantifying what's actually happening is nearly impossible with that many species, and that's not even very many. It gets a lot easier when you just look at a single species and it's you know slightly harder looking at three, but it's still possible with the technology we have today to make some progress there and to come up with very targeted and very effective blends. And so what would the assay testing look like? What are, what are you measuring for and how does a bacteria win that race? That's a, that's a really good question. So there's a lot of different things that we can look for. You know, some of the bacteria we work with are champions of biofilm formation, which is, um, you know, something that's important uh, from a biocontrol perspective. There are other bacteria that are enzyme champions that produce so many enzymes they can degrade all sorts of organic matter and mobilize tons of nutrients. And there are others that you will uh, induce systemic resistance. So they have very complex uh, biochemical interactions with the plant and you know can even trick a plant into thinking that it's being attacked by a pathogen when in reality it's a it's essentially a friendly neighbor um, and it's it ends up promoting plant growth whether that's through enhanced defenses or uh, whatnot so 
the screening type, is, or, you know, the screening possibilities are almost endless. Um, it just depends what you're looking for. We can do uh, very small cell cultures, you know, 96 well plates, where we screen for antibiotic resistance or resistance to harsh chemicals or salt resistance, salt tolerance by these species, um, which might be relevant to like a hydroponic grower. Um, we can look at phosphorus pr uh, mobilization or cellulization or nitrogen production, anything like that. And it can range on scale from you know something in a petri dish all the way up to uh, plant trials, which is something that we focus on almost exclusively at our facility. So you really want to see where the rubber meets the road and what's making that plant grow. Yeah, that's, that's right. And we don't, uh, that's not to say we neglect the, uh, you know, the lab side of it, the microbiological side of it. Um, we certainly focus, uh, place a lot of emphasis on that. Um, we're just particularly concerned with the applications um, and the, uh, the feasibility of using the products and actually seeing the results in the field that we see in the lab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the fun part about being in industry instead. You're looking for stuff that really works. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you mentioned phosphorus and nitrogen. And as a plant person, can you explain why phosphorus and nitrogen are so important to plants and why they are the heart of what fertilizers do? Sure. So the plant really needs nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and uh, all the other 17 or 18 different um, macro and micronutrients uh, just to survive. Um, so when it's building new leaves or flowers, you know, buds, um, it needs tons of phosphorus to put into, uh, you know, ATP. It needs tons of nitrogen to build uh, different amino acids, which end up turning into proteins, um, different carbohydrates. So really the, the plant is able to take these individual elements and build them into uh, things like that, like proteins. Um, and, and literally create its own structure by combining it with sugars that it produces through photosynthesis. Uh, we don't do that as people. Obviously, we have to eat plants, and then we can derive our uh, amino acids to build our own proteins from things like plants or meat or, or whatnot. And one of the other things that I read about in your paper about the synthesis of hormones caused by your bacteria. How does that work, and how does it help the plant? Yeah, that's uh, particularly interesting when it comes to plant growth promoting rhizobacteria there's a ton of uh, different species that are known to produce like indoleacetic acid um, which is a plant hormone and this has been shown to have significant role uh, in a lot of root morphology or root system architecture so these bacteria sec can secrete um, like IAA and the result is you get increased lateral root branching uh, so you increase the surface area of the root and the result is greater water uptake, greater availability and uptake of different nutrients, and essentially increased plant growth. And it, it's just fascinating because so, it sounds like these bacteria are doing so much of what you buy these heavy-duty fertilizers to do and more. Yeah, and that's, I think, the, uh, you know, kind of the, the needle in the haystack, or it would be the gold standard if we could ever get uh, to the point where we can solely provide all the nutrients that a plant needs with biological fertilizers rather than chemical fertilizers. Right now, we're not there yet. So our bacteria can really help um, or act as kind of a supplement to chemical fertilizers, but we're not quite at the point where we can entirely replace uh, chemical fertilizers or even a source of you know, uh, nutrients through an organic fertilizer, um, but we can certainly help by using biology.
it's really intriguing that in addition to this positive help for healthy plants that you're talking about, it seems like there's a number of helps for challenges for plants. Uh, for instance, if your plants were in a drought condition, how would these bacteria be helpful there? So this is one of the, the coolest things about these bacteria, I think. And um, when we were developing our product, this is something we were really concerned about. We want, um, you know, we want the plant to live, ultimately. We, we, you know, we produce bacteria, but we're actually really plant guys. Um, so we care far more about the plant than our little bacteria. And in a drought ca condition or something, uh, where these bacteria have colonized plant roots and are degrading organic matter, um, you know, producing a biofilm along different surfaces or just growing really close. They're first helping prevent drought by allowing the plant to uptake more water before that drought onsets. So let's say you know, you're in a field in Pueblo and there's, you know, you're irrigating and, and everything's good and the plant is uptaking a ton of water, uh, especially relative to what it would be if it wasn't inoculated. And then maybe... Uh, you have some sort of drought or you can't pump water out of a river or you, you know, your well runs dry, whatever, the plant will, first of all, be more uh, ready to withstand that drought condition just because it has more water in its system. The roots will also be protected or have greater protection from desiccation just because there's a physical barrier of that bacteria on the root surface and the bacteria will dry out or, or dry out slower um, than a regular root would if uh, it didn't have that film on there. Uh, and you, know, you have greater surface area, so you're able to uh, access more water that's stored in the soil that a root might not otherwise be able to get to. And those are just some of the ways. Yeah, even, and uh, you had things about genetic changes happening at the plant level because of your bacteria. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, so the bacteria, this goes to the whole induced systemic resistance thing, which I think is one of the most promising areas um, uh, in this whole biological nutrition or bacteriology research, rhizosphere biology, is um, yeah the ability of these, these plants and, and the microbes to kind of talk with each other and to almost have a conversation about what's going on in the world around them. Um, the bacteria can really help the plant or you know, in, induce certain changes in the plant which help the plant survive. And by helping the plant survive, uh, the bacteria are actually helping themselves because they're deriving a lot of their food from the plant. Um, so it is a, a true symbiotic relationship. Uh, the way in which they're doing this is just fascinating to me and I think a lot of researchers around the world but there's a ton that we don't know about how this is actually happening, and that's, uh, that's where we're really focusing a lot of our efforts. Yeah, it seems like whenever I read anything about the rhizosphere and the areas around the roots, it's just scientists saying, wow, this is a lot. We know a lot. It'll take you a year or two to learn what we do know, but all we see is unanswered questions. Yeah, exactly. And every day I, uh, you know, I try and stay up to date on literature, and every time I read something, I'm like, wow, we don't know anything. Um, you know, we know a lot, but there is so much that we don't know, and it's uh, one of the most inspiring things, I think, in my life. That's cool. Um, uh, some of the more stuff we do know, uh, I was in there, it was also intriguing that it can help with salinity. If there's too much salt around the plant, it's, it can change the lipid levels in the plant, the fat levels. Yeah, exactly. So the, the bacteria, um, our bacillus particularly, are good at producing what's called uh, EPS, or exopolysaccharides. Um, and these are, this gets fairly complicated with the, the exact mechanism, but uh, basically they help prevent the plant from uptaking 
too much uh, uh, salt um, and helps regulate the osmotic pressure within the cells. So you have uh, lower stress caused by uh, high salinity. Um, and, one, and one of the other big stressors of pests. And so, it, so your, your bacteria can also help kill the larvae of pests as well as degrade the cell walls of them? Yeah, and this speaks to the diversity of uh, you know, bacterial species. So the strains we use in our products um, are really specifically for, for growth promotion and nutrient mobilization. And they're all Bacillus species. Um, Bacillus thuringiensis is a, a very famous, it's actually the most common pesticide used in the world, and it's an organic uh, you know, microbe, essentially. Um, but that one is uh, phenomenal at, uh, yeah, acting as an insecticide. Um, and lots of Bacillus species produce enzymes like what you were saying, you know, cellulase and uh, different, different proteases and lipases. And all these enzymes will degrade things like cell walls of uh, even different pathogens. Um, or yeah, larva, and it gets specific. You know, some strains or species are better than others, um, but a lot of these bacteria have exhibited uh, properties like that, and we're just starting to explore that more. Uh, so it's an exciting time. I want to hear more about the business side of this, since now you have a good product that works, and you're constantly tinkering with it and making it better. Um, how's business going now, and what does the the short term look like for you, Eric? It's, it's going really well. Um, one of the biggest concerns, Michael can talk to you about the science all day, and he's brilliant. Uh, one of the biggest concerns for us was as this, this cannabis market becomes more mature, uh, like other egg industries, um, we needed to be able to produce large scale. So we can, on a petri dish, we can grow these bacteria, and we, we know what they're doing, um, as Michael just talked about. But how do you produce a product for a farm that's growing a thousand acres of hemp or onions, whatever they're growing? Um, and so over the last year, uh, that has kind of been my mission on the operation side. How, how do we how do we fulfill these orders? How do we get product into these large growers' hands? Um, and it we're doing well. Um, we're there. How much um, education have you found among the people coming to you? Are there a lot of people who are? just start off curious and have barely heard anything? Or do you get a lot of farmers who are, they come in and they know a lot about this and they just want your expertise? You'd be surprised. People do know a lot. And I will say the cannabis industry, it's progressive. And they know, the, from who we've talked with, a lot of people do. They're, they come from this horticulture background. Um, and they, they have an idea of what these bacteria can do for them. Um, it comes down to Michael and myself and our other partner, Adam, uh, and the few employees we have um, educating them further uh, and then showing how they can implement this and how it's economically viable for them. Um, but yes, there's people are do have somewhat of an understanding of what we're doing. Um, and have the customers for you been mostly cannabis so far? Or have you been able to reach other uh, types of agriculture? It's a mix. So uh, yes, um, we have focused on cannabis because we're in Colorado. We're passionate about cannabis. Um, but we do work with vegetable farmers, um, particularly onion farmers. Uh, we're, we're starting to focus on potato farmers. Uh, the San Luis Valley is huge for that. Um, we, Michael actually spoke at the Colorado Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association Conference uh, this past winter. Um, and that, that is an area that we're looking to as well. Because bacteria don't discriminate against roots. They don't discriminate if it's a cannabis root or if it's an onion root. Um, they go to work for, for all crops. Okay, so... 
could there be a future where you start tailoring to different crops specifically or is this bacteria kind of robust enough to work great the way it is i think you should answer this one michael so there's a lot of uh opportunity to develop custom you know tailor-made strains to different you know uh, crops different cultivars of individual crops and really even progress further getting down to really specific environments um you know west coast east coast north south um this is something that you know i find absolutely fascinating i'd love to start working and progressing down that road there's a lot of very well-funded companies uh, out there that are starting to work on this already um more on the big ag side of things uh, like eric was just saying our emphasis is you know we're we're starting with cannabis we love cannabis um, we're also interested in other high value crops like hops um, it's so closely related to cannabis it's almost a no-brainer uh, there's a lot of potential in those industries and particularly the ones where the quality of the fruit or the the end product is uh, incredibly important uh, is probably the ones we're going to focus on first um, but yeah, ultimately, there's a huge potential to use our bacteria or any you know, future iteration of our bacterial products uh, on almost any crop in any market. And so would, do you have a grand vision you'd like to see, a place you'd really like to be in five to ten years of who you're working with and, and what you're up to? Yeah, uh, we want to be working with the biggest cannabis farms in the world. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that are specifically focusing on an individual crop. And we see that cannabis will be federally legal at, in the next 10 years. Uh, globally, it will be legal in most parts of the Western world, at least. Um, and so we believe focusing, being in Colorado in this, in this uh, market um, is putting us in the, in the right area to, to kind of put us in that position um, to be working with the biggest farms in the world. Um, and so, yes, I, I, that is that is a goal. It's a lofty goal. Um, but I don't. There's no reason to start this if that's not your goal. So, in the beginning, you mentioned about other biostimulants that you were interested in as well, expanding beyond the bacteria. Uh, what are some of the favorites in that group? Sure. So, uh, one product, uh, one other type of biostimulant that we sell right now is uh, uh, organic fish protein hydrolysate, uh, which in and of itself is not incredibly unique, but it has a ton of amino acids in it. And amino acids are one type of biostimulant that have been used in agriculture, but haven't been widely adopted yet. Um, and these can play, I mean, the amino acids are incredible um, because they can feed and stimulate both the plant uh, and the microbes in the soil. Uh, our fish protein hydrosite has lots of different fats and carbohydrates and protein in it. And when you think about a fertilizer for a plant, you don't usually think about those things. That's something that people would eat, but not plants. But it teams up just perfectly with the bacteria that we produce because our bacteria produce enzymes like lipase, which degrades lipids or fats. They produce protease, which degrades proteins. And when they're degrading these proteins, they're not only adding organic matter to the soil, but they're making nutrients that are locked up in those compounds available to the plant in a totally you know organic and sustainable way um, so not only are you getting biostimulation you're, you're improving the sugar content in plant leaves when you apply something like amino acids compared to a conventional fertilizer you're actually doing a favor to the planet as well um, another area that we're uh, just actually working on uh, 
releasing a product in the near future here um, are some different biochemicals that uh, when they're applied to the plant kind of trick the plant into thinking that it's being attacked by a, a pest or a pathogen and it will upregulate certain uh, defense mechanisms which in the case of uh, cannabis would be something like cannabinoids or terpenes and at the same time you avoid actually uh, the yield reduction or the, the stresses that are associated with a, a literal uh, pest or pathogen attack so you keep plant productivity very high but you actually uh, induce the production of all these secondary compounds that are very valuable particularly in a plant like cannabis interesting so i guess that kind of bolsters the theory that the terpenes and the cannabinoids evolved as an insect defense in the first place since we still don't really know why those things are in there but if uh, they're stimulated by a little bit of an attack yeah exactly and this is one thing um we were working uh, uh, pretty closely with uh, CBDRX, uh, who's provided some great genetics for us to work with. And those plants, uh, one of their varieties, has been had its genome sequenced by a company called Hemp Gene, uh, also in the Fort Collins area. And you know, through kind of a combined partnership, we're able to uh, identify certain genes or certain uh, uh, parts of the genome that are responsible for things like. Uh, THC production or cannabinoid production, terpene production. And this all ties into the work we're doing with these different biochemicals um, because we can see that, yeah, when you apply this product, not only do you get this response, but that helps us say for sure that, oh, this, this gene, this production of cannabinoid or of, of CBD or THC must be related to this type of defense response in the plant. All right, and one last question before I let you uh, get back to work. So if we could land you a giant research grant, so this, your, all your free time could be spent studying these things, what would be most appealing for you to start looking at and, and working with? So there's a lot of things that I'm interested in. Um, the biological nutrition or biostimulants in general, I think, is how I define our company. So if we were to have, let's say, unlimited resources to pursue something, coming up with a super effective uh, either single product or line of microbial products um, that can make a significant impact in the sustainability of, of grow operations would be a high priority on my list. Another one is just improving nutritional quality and, and crop quality for cannabis and, and hops and all other sorts of plants um, because I think in doing something like that, we can not only improve the sustainability of producing these different crops um, and simultaneously improve the nutritional quality, so get more out of less, um, but we can start to unlock, uh, I don't want to sound cliche here, but we can start to really unlock the power that's kind of held up in these different plants, um, maybe in you know kind of uh, nuanced compounds that we haven't really been able to explore yet because they're not produced in high enough quantities. And this is particularly relevant for cannabis, you know, because there's so many cannabinoids and terpenes, and we're just starting to learn how they interact with the human body and how they interact with each other and what all is happening. So I think, you know, encouraging greater crop, crop quality um, is, you know, through the use of biostimulants or biological nutrition is, uh, what we would like to focus on. 
All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today, and hopefully we'll see uh, you both soon heading up big R&D departments at this industrial giant of using bacteria for good. We appreciate it. We had a good time. Yeah, it was great talking to you, and we hope so too. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day.